Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, Associate Professor of Medicine here at GW and Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're joined by Dr. Dustin Sulek, an integrative osteopathic physician and medical cannabis expert whose clinical practice is focused on treating refractory conditions in adults and children. Dr. Sulek is founder and co-medical director of Integrate Health, a medical practice that follows more than 8,000 patients using medical cannabis and other integrative healing modalities. Dr. Sulak has had his research published in numerous peer-reviewed journals. He is also the founder of a website called Healer.com for uh, patients, and he lectures frequently on the clinical applications of cannabis. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Dustin. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Well, let's jump right in. Um, Dustin, you've been um, leader of this field for quite some time, and I think your unique expertise is, in fact, that you're actually treating lots of patients. So it's not just um, reading and following the most up-to-date research, but you're, you're applying all this in clinical practice and, and really gaining a lots of experience from that. As a, one of the leaders... You were involved in a recent recommendation of uh, medical cannabis for treatment of chronic pain. Um, I know Medline mistakenly put that as a guidelines, but these were recommendations. But nonetheless, I think, um, you know, we probably don't want to call them guidelines, but they are, in, in essence, could be considered a guideline. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I think the background is that there's a lot of evidence that cannabis can be very helpful for chronic pain. And certainly we know that, you know, primary care doctors and pain specialists alike need more tools. The tools that we are currently using are inadequate. And um, while helpful for some patients, there's a lot of room for improvement there. So then the question is, well, if cannabis is effective as a treatment for chronic pain, how do we use it? And the answer to that question really requires a, a whole nother paradigm, which is the integrative medicine paradigm. It's just uh, cannabis is not a single medicine. There's so many routes of delivery and broad dosing ranges with uh, uh, very uh, unique dose response effects and lots of caveats to cannabis that are um, people that are familiar with botanical medicines and with the integrative medicine paradigm are a lot more comfortable with cannabis medicine. But the idea was that we don't want cannabis to be limited to those that have been on the front lines of cannabis medicine for the last you know, decade or two. Uh, we want this to uh, be palatable and understandable by our, our colleagues that aren't cannabis specialists. And so that's that was the um, the inspiration for this project that Spectrum Therapeutics uh, sponsored. Now, Spectrum is a part of uh, Canopy Gro Growth Corporation. And so this is a for-profit, uh, very large international uh, cannabis organization that makes products. But I will say that this entire process, I felt zero corporate pressure or any type of bias introduced. What, what Spectrum essentially did was gather people from all over the world, clinicians that had been 
either on the front lines of medical cannabis, treating patients in the trenches, or for uh, clinicians that are uh, pain specialists, experts in the area that are interested in cannabis and have started using it with their patients. And so br bringing people from all over the world together to fill in the gap, because the gap is we don't have the peer-reviewed clinical trial data to tell us what's the best way to use cannabis to treat chronic pain. You know, it just, it hasn't been done yet. And so in the absence of data that can create official guidelines, the, the um, strategy often in medicine is to get a consensus from experts and let those experts come together, see where they agree, see where they disagree, talk it out, and then publish recommendations based on those conversations and votes. And that's exactly what we did. That's great. And can you give our listeners just a maybe couple of minutes worth of uh, most important findings or conclusions that the um, committee made? Sure. So, and, and so this was done via something called a Delphi process where we look at a series of questions and we edit the questions until we feel that they're um, the right questions to help us uh, get the um, recommendations we're looking for. And then we, we answer the questions, which is like a voting process, and then uh, come back together several times to work through our differences. And so the way we um, kind of ended up together, and I will say, you know, I'm going to report on the group consensus, even even though uh, this is not what I would be recommending. You know, when I teach clinicians, uh, I have a book coming out next year called Handbook of Cannabis for Clinicians, which uh, has a whole chapter devoted to how to use cannabis to treat chronic pain. And so th these recommendations from this consensus don't precisely uh, reflect my opinion, but I still think they're valid because it was a valid process that we used to arrive at them. And so uh, the conclusions were that cannabis could be used to treat any type of pain, whether it's mixed neuropathic inflammatory, or what they call nociplastic pain, uh, that uh, it should be avoided in um, women who are pregnant or breastfeeding and in people with psychotic disorders, that there's no minimum or maximum age for which we would use cannabis to treat chronic pain. Uh, certain drug-drug interactions we had cautions on. And then what we talked about as far as dosing and uh, delivery method was to start with the oral route. And that's really where we focused. And so the, the group came up with basically three uh, algorithms, if you will, for treating someone with chronic pain. One that we called the routine dosing and administration protocol. One that is the conservative protocol, which would be for frail patients or those that are very hesitant about cannabis or sensitive to other drugs. And then the more rapid dosing protocol is for those that uh, just there's a greater sense of urgency in getting them some relief. And so looking at those, I can start with routine. And, and the concept was to start with a cannabis preparation that is CBD predominant. And what this means, uh, one part THC to 10 parts CBD or even a lower ratio than that. And so it's, uh, it, and the starting dose was five milligrams of CBD predominant twice daily, which is, in my opinion, is a low dose. I think few people with uh, uh, significant chronic pain would respond to that, but some might. And so just keep in mind that five milligrams of CBD may also be referring to half a milligram of THC. And then the titration is to increase the, the dosage by 10 milligrams a day, total cannabinoids. So, you know, maybe nine and a half of CBD and half of, uh, of uh, THC or somewhere in that range. 
to increase that uh, every two to three days. So it's a titration amount, which is 10 milligrams, a titration frequency, which is every two to three days. And then if somebody reaches a dose of 40 milligrams or more per day, and they're still not having good results, then it's starting, then it's time to layer in some more THC. So we would keep that CBD dose stable there and add two and a half milligrams of THC per day and continue to increase THC by two and a half milligrams every two to seven days until a maximum of 40 milligrams of THC is reached. So I know you have some experience using cannabis, Misha, and I'm, I'm wondering uh, also how, how this appears to you as, uh, based on your clinical practice. For me, it seems conservative, uh, and I think that's appropriate if we're trying to get this into the hands of clinicians that don't have experience with cannabis. I'd rather them shoot uh, in a in conservative way instead of overwhelm the patient, have a negative experience with adverse effects. But I'm, I also think that it's um, that cannabis can be used safely in a more liberal dosing uh, manner. Yeah, no, I think I completely agree. I, I can actually like the separation into categories. Uh, I think that separation is very clinically relevant. Uh, you know, I, my practice is a little different. So I'm, I'm doing, you know, 80% of my practice are people over 65 or patients on hospice. So I think um, a lot of them are frail, but also a lot of them have a very urgent need. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I sometimes um, do, I don't know if I learned it from you or I just learned that, you know, that you do a, maybe three to five days of subtherapeutic dose and then you very rapidly increase after that. Um, you know, and, and ratios, I think the ratios are very relative and, and it's really hard to sort of guess estimate ahead of time, but I try actually, I try to make a sense as to what, what should be the best Uh, ratio for a given patient and you know it's a combination of what else is going on with them will the cbd have other possible improvement if the pain is more arthritic for example um you know so but but you're right i mean we don't actually know for sure i'm i'm involved in trying to plan um randomized trials with one of the large industry partners so i think i'm sure i'm not the only one and I, i think i'm sure there are other uh, industry partners, but also probably academicians that are trying to do, and I'm sure you, you've listened to the NIH recent um, meeting, and there are, we, we know that there are people in academia trying to do research, although obviously <clears throat> it's hard to do. So, But yeah, I, I find the overall recommendations very welcoming, and they may not affect my practice much, but you know, there are a lot of providers who are extremely hesitant to even open this subject, yet they know that a lot of their patients talking about it and there is efficacy and they want to learn. They just don't have good trusted sources. So this is kind of a first very highly evidenced, well-organized, and hopefully you can tell us when the actual formal publications can be published because, of course, we're waiting for that. Um, but sure. yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I, you know, we it's submitted, but it has not been accepted yet. So I, I don't have any uh, specific information on when this will be out. You know, and I just I think this can be a double-edged sword. I think it'll be wonderful for clinicians that know little about cannabis and just want to have some support in uh, doing cannabis trials with po- appropriate patients. And we go really in in the manuscript, we go deep into uh, selecting good candidates, and and we had a lot of consent. Around that, 
there is a, um, an urgent need, right? Pa patients have chronic pain. It's affecting their quality of life. It's affecting their families and their communities and their productivity. Uh, there's a huge opioid crisis. We don't have enough effective treatments. Let's not wait another decade for uh, you know all these peer-reviewed trials to be out if if they get the funding they need and the publications that they deserve. So um, so I like that this is kind of ho hopefully going to accelerate bringing cannabis into the mainstream view of, of uh, pain physicians and primary care physicians. The other side of this, though, is um, that this is not the only way to use cannabis. Cannabis is such a versatile tool, and I really would um, hope that clinicians who choose to approach cannabis dosing differently than these recommendations aren't scrutinized for, for those decisions. And I, I don't really expect that, but I could see that happening. I will say, though, that this um, exact process happened with a group of um, mostly Canadian clinicians. I was the only clinician from the U.S. invited, but we we had another Delphi process prior to this global summit, and the purpose of that uh, was to identify how to dose cannabis to help reduce and uh, eliminate opioid medications in patients with chronic pain. And I can announce that that was accepted for publication just yesterday in the International Journal of Clinical Practice, and I I think that that's even a more urgent need because there's a lot of patients out there that are using opioids for chronic pain and they're using cannabis to try to get off the opioids or reduce their opioids without clinical supervision. And uh, I think just uh, taking this out of, the, out of the dark and into the light and helping clinicians feel empowered to actually do this. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited about that. So I feel great that that publication was accepted. That's wonderful. I actually think that this is a critically important topic, and you're right. I think it, it, it will have more chances of changing practice because especially for chronic pain um, practices, and you know, they are desperate at finding new venues. And even in, on our own campus, um, we have a very good chronic pain service, and it took them quite a while to start opening up to cannabis after I gave... Uh, a grand rounds on the topic and you know they referred multiple patients to me but eventually they really need to step up and do it on their own you know i can't see all these patients for them and and having the not just specific recommendations but also really showing them look not only is it safe with opiates it actually clearly dropping the use of opiates but you have to know how to help the patient so this is very welcoming very timely and i think I think you guys going to end up saving thousands lives, if not, you know, I don't know, I don't want to say millions, but it, it wouldn't surprise me that over decades that actually will add up to that number of potentially saved lives, because we do know that cannabis has potentially decreasing uh, amount of opiates used, and it's been published, it's been published widely and in a very prestigious journals. I, I hope that this gives clinicians the confidence to dip their toe in the water because once you're in there, it's impossible to deny. I mean, you know, at the end of every day, and I've been practicing for 11 years now using cannabis with my patients, I still get together with the other providers in my office and we talk about how many patients got off opioids, how many patients got off benzodiazepines, how many people uh, aren't using a, a cane or a wheelchair anymore. I mean, it's it sounds too good to be true. A lot of patients are also having these profound improvements in their quality of life, despite the fact that their symptoms of their disease process is only slightly better. And that's another 
powerful property of cannabis to help people feel more like themselves and to return to this uh, normal uh, relationship with themselves and, and their own health. There's just so many uh, aspects to cannabis, but I think that clinicians that give this a try and get started are just going to be so impressed with the results that they're seeing and, and maybe perplexed by the results that they're seeing because it, it really is different than other medications. It has such a broad effect on someone and so many um, potential beneficial side effects. Dustin, according to a 2017 survey, most physicians never learn anything about cannabis in medical school. So why is dosing cannabis unlike other therapeutic agents in which physicians are exposed to during their medical training? A great question. So, and, and another, you know, part of that question is why aren't we learning about this in medical school? Well, as I mentioned before, it's really, uh, it requires a different paradigm to uh, understand cannabis. And uh, unfortunately, medical school curricula is heavily influenced by the medical industry, including the pharmaceutical industry. And I, I know I graduated medical school in 2008 when I started uh, when I um, got through my curriculum and got interested in cannabis, I actually looked back and reflected on had they mentioned the term endocannabinoid. And I had all my slides and notes from all my lectures over the years in medical school. And it actually had come up twice. I learned that the target of Marinol or Dronabinol, which is a synthetic THC that's FDA approved, is the CB1 receptor. So they actually mentioned the, the CB1 receptor, which is uh, just, so just, just for background information, this CB1 receptor is a membrane receptor that's present in cells and tissues all over the body, pretty much every system of the body, and it's uh, innately a part of our healing system. It's our uh, capacity to respond to injury, to heal from illness, to stay healthy. The endocannabinoid system via this and one other receptor, the CB2 receptor, modulate many other systems in the body, including the immune system and the musculoskeletal system, digestive, neurologic system. They guide development of the embryo and the fetus. I mean, there's just so much that we should have learned about this, yet it was only mentioned when we talked about the FDA-approved drug that targeted that system, and it was just mentioned once. And I don't think that that's changed much in the last 10 years. Uh, I think that that's still pretty much the case. So that's why. Now, now, uh, how is cannabis different than other therapeutic agents? Well, when we're interacting with a system that governs homeostatic activity in the body, that's, I mean, that's really the goal of the system. It can be, um, you have to approach it with finesse. You can't just overwhelm it or underwhelm it. And so I'd say, you know, just to summarize some of the differences with cannabis, there's a very broad dosing range. So I might be able to uh, treat an adult with one to two milligrams of cannabinoids per day and get satisfactory results. I could safely and effectively treat someone with a thousand or 2000 milligrams per day. And so we don't see that kind of dosing range in other medications typically where it's, it's non-toxic and safe even at these very high doses, but can be effective in extremely low doses. And I will say that those examples are outliers. That's not the common experience in, in the practice, I think we could narrow that down to maybe uh, somewhere in like the 3 to 30 milligram range is probably where a lot of my patients are in terms of oral cannabis. But some people need more and some people need a lot less. Then within this incredibly broad dosing range, there are what we call non-linear dose response effects. So you might start titrating up, increasing the dose and see a stronger and stronger effect, maybe an effect that you're looking for. Then you might continue to increase the dose and see that 
benefit start to go away. And then if you increase the dose even more, it might come back again, but not as much as it did that first time when it was there. And so there's, um, there's a requirement for careful titration of the dosage for self-awareness of the patient to be able to feel and understand when they're responding, if they're having beneficial effects or adverse effects, and be willing to journal that. And so the whole thing uh, becomes a partnership between patient and their clinician, which is one of the core principles of integrative medicine. And it becomes um, a exercise in self-awareness and self-efficacy. And it, it really uh, is self-empowering for the patient to kind of take, they have to take the reins to some extent. This, they can't be a disempowered patient doing only what their clinician tells them to do. And I, I love that. The other very self-empowering part about cannabis is that it can be grown and produced in someone's own backyard. They can make a year supply easily uh, for very low cost. Uh, for years here in Maine, we were practicing cannabis medicine without any awareness of the milligram dosing that our patients were using because labs weren't available and uh, all the products were homemade or artisanal. And so people that are still in um, legal environments like that where they don't have access to labs, dispensaries with tested products, they can still get great results. And, um, and, and you know, there's just such a wide range of what people can do with cannabis, what conditions can be treated. It's an incredible versatile tools. So I, um, I would not, I, I can barely imagine what it would be like to be a generalist or an integrative medicine specialist, which tends to attract, like I do, refractory conditions, you know, patients that have tried everything in conventional medicine, they don't get anywhere and they come to us and we have to be agile enough to handle patients from every other specialty field in medicine. And of course, we can do that because our focus is on the healing system and how to augment it, how to remove obstacles to healing. And that's uh, that's a paradigm that applies to any patient, regardless of what type of condition they have. Well, I know with, um, with my uh, background working with physician assistants on a national level, Maine was always forward-thinking um, when it comes to trying to um, treat patients with substance abuse conditions. Um, I know you guys are really big with uh, the REMS training, and this was years ago. Right. But anyway, um, Dustin, I wanted to ask you about your – you mentioned earlier that you have a book coming out. Yes. So I love teaching. I've, it's, it's um, you know, when we do one of those things in our lives that we just feel like we're at our best and totally inspired to do it. That's typically how I am uh, when I have the opportunity to teach and, and clinicians are a special audience for me. So I've, I've had a lot of opportunities to, to teach clinicians over the years and everybody's been asking me to kind of put it in writing. And so I did that I, over the last year and a half. I wrote a book that's specifically for clinicians. It's not translated to terminology. It's uh, concise but complete, and I'm really excited. It was going to come out actually this fall, but uh, the publishing industry uh, got hit pretty hard by COVID, so we expect yeah, everything it early. is 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 <laughs> up in the air. Yeah, it's really it's really hard. So uh, yeah, I think I think that um, you know a lot of uh, titles were 
postponed and and then uh the printers had a lot of trouble uh keeping their businesses alive and then now there's like double the load and lower printing ability so anyways it's uh norton professional is the publisher they've been great to work with and we should see it in either the early uh first or second quarter of next year so that's called handbook of cannabis for clinicians principles and practice and i think that any clinician whether they're a cannabis expert or just dabbling would uh find it very accessible and complete and it's all written through the framework of integrative medicine. Then um, another educational offering that I have right now, well, well, two others. So um, back in 2014, we started Healer.com, which is a free patient education website. And that was essentially, uh, you, you know, so what I've been doing in cannabis medicine is realizing that there's all these challenges, all these bottlenecks in the way of patients getting great results. And I want to free those up, you know, help people be healthy now and not have to wait. And it was clear to me that the first challenge was patient education. You know, everywhere I went to teach, patients were telling me that their doctors gave them their certification, but no instructions and basically sent them to the dispensary to ask a clerk how to treat their medical condition. And so I wanted to... Um, uh, That's exactly that. what happened to one of my aunts. Yeah, it's it's really not fair. It's not fair to the to the clerk at the dispensary either. So I wanted to interrupt that uh, process and just go straight to the patient. And so we did that. It's still online, healer.com, a lot of free patient education, whether you're brand new to cannabis or experienced with cannabis, regardless of where you live and what's available to you and regardless of what your condition is. I, I think we designed that so people can get results. Uh, and, um, and then the next bottleneck was, of course, those poor clerks at the dispensary trying to do the doctor's job, and um, and it's uh, it was really unfair and and not good for the patients either. So actually, Maryland was the first state to require that dispensary agents had formal training. So I put together a curriculum for the dispensaries in Maryland, which uh, we were friends with and and um, did some consulting for, and so uh, that became really popular. It turned out to be a curriculum that was very applicable, not just for dispensary agents, but also for industry professionals for caregivers, for um, and then it turns out for clinicians. Now we have about 300 clinicians as part of this paid training community, and it's a, it's a modest fee. And basically, there's an online curriculum, and then we have monthly webinars, which are just wonderful. I have one just two nights ago. And so in the webinar, I go over everything that I feel like is clinically important from the peer-reviewed literature that's come out in the last month. So it keeps me up to date on the literature, of course, and I review all of that. And then we basically talk cases for the next hour. And it's just a, a really uh, warm, supportive, collaborative community and, and really diverse. I love bringing people together from different backgrounds and different levels of education and, and training and experience. So uh, you can tell I'm excited about it. So that's all on, on healer.com, all that education education. Having a platform like that is crucial because I know that when a clinician is uncomfortable, they're less likely to use that treatment option. For sure. It's um, it's uh, uncomfortable is kind of the mild term, uh, Janet, because, you know, it's um, it's usually a bias. You know, it's usually an emotional attachment. So when, uh, and, and this was really interesting, it's changed a lot, but a lot of clinicians, you know, you can sense when someone is having a thought or when they're having a thought with a, an emotion connected, right? It shows up in their body language, their voice, you can feel it in their autonomic tone mm -hmm. if you're in the room with them. That, um, 
that used to be so strong when I would get in front of, a, you know, not a cannabis conference, but say like a family practice conference or pain physician conference and uh, start talking about cannabis, you could feel the sympathetic drive in the tone. <laughs> you know, it's just incredible that um, there was such an emotional reaction to this. And then I'd finish my talk and ask for questions and, you know, the hand would go up and instead of a question, it would be, well, I know someone that cannabis ruined their life, uh, but it wasn't cannabis, marijuana ruined their life life, you know, yeah. and you get this, you get this story. And of course, any drug could ruin anyone's life if it's not used correctly, but that would be food can ruin your life when used incorrectly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And other, and this, this actually happened uh, last year. It was really impressive. I gave a talk uh, just about a year ago at OMED, which is like the biggest osteopathic conference. And it was a talk mm -hmm. on uh, using cannabis as a substitute for opioids uh, in chronic pain patients, that same topic. And um, it, it was just amazing. People were actually shouting at me out of turn from the audience. And th there was just a few of them in there. And then every time I, uh, everywhere I walked in the rest of the conference, other docs were coming up to me and saying, oh, my God, I'm so sorry they treated you that way. I can't believe how unprofessional that was. And you handled it so well. And I'm, I'm just used to it. But but yeah. now, m more often, I'm getting the hand that goes up and they're saying, well, can I use it to treat ADHD or is it good for sleep? Or, you know, I'm getting... Uh, a lot more interest and in that emotional reactivity has gone away. And I, I think that's um, ju that's just a matter of exposure and education and uh, the, the trend of open-mindedness. So we're going in the right direction. So, but, you know, I'm, I, I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate. I agree with you. I think we're going into the right direction, you know, but there are definitely forces that are trying to slow it down. I think there are forces that are... Um, you know, it's not just the basic pushback. It sometimes feels more than that. You know, it feels like it's a fear of unknown and maybe it's a fear of known, literally, that there, there are a lot of industry is afraid that, you know, the medications that they've been pushing or other treatments are just not as effective. And they're afraid that, that some of the things that they do are going to go away when the cannabis becomes effective tool for the whole country and the whole of the world. So, so, you know, I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, how do you think the trajectory here is going to look? I mean, are we going to just gradually state-by-state state increase, or are we at the, some kind of threshold where after that it's just going to be a roller coaster down, fast in the seatbelt kind of thing? Yeah, great question. It's, it's hard to predict, but one thing that I uh, strongly suspect is that this is going to be led by patients. You know, even if in 2021 we have federal legalization or removal of cannabis from the Controlled Substance Act, I don't expect physicians and other clinicians to suddenly say, oh, now it's federally legal. Let's uh, let's really figure this out and, and learn how to implement this in our practice. I, I don't see that happening. And um, it's sad. You know, there's just so many deep systemic issues with the medical system right now that we're not going to get into all of them. But the, the whole monomolecular medicine paradigm, the whole paternalistic top-down paradigm is really um, getting in the way of what's needed for uh, physicians to adequately and, and successfully implement cannabis. So I think it's going to be patient-driven. That, that's what I've seen. Um, more and more patients are asking about it. When they ask around, in, around my area here in Maine, uh, 
very often they would be sent to me as a referral. But now I'm starting to see that some of the people who have referred to me are dipping their toe in and doing it themselves. And I love to see that. So uh, that's that's my message is um, if you have a patient that's using cannabis, listen to them. If uh, if you don't know if your patients are using cannabis or not, start asking them. It's an incredible way to build rapport if they are using cannabis and they learn that their clinician is willing to talk about it in an open-minded way without that emotional reactivity or that uh, guilt trip, then uh, you just, you just scored big time on the, on rapport right there. And so I, you know, I, I think it's, it's going to be patient driven. I'm not sure what's going to happen. Honestly, there was something interesting. Maybe you saw this in your patients, Misha. In 2016, we passed a, an adult use law in Maine. So it became legal for adults to basically just grow their own, possess it and give it away for free. There was no regular marketplace. But um, after that law passed, we got a huge influx of older adults into a, the practice for medical purposes. And so even though the two things were seemingly unrelated, I mean, it, it was drastic. Just in the two or three months, our, uh, you know, our initial visits became like 75 or 80 uh, percent adults over the age of 65 all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And uh, and when I asked them what's going on, you know, th they didn't have a good answer, but many did say, well, I guess it's, since it's legal now, that must mean it's okay to use it as a medicine. And I was trying to figure that out. Like, how does that work? But I think I think that's that is how society works. And when it becomes, uh, you, you know, when it kind of moves categories into something that's not bad or not scorned or maybe not as dangerous as it once was, then I think it's going to just help the medical the medical side of things. I just finished uh, working on a presentation titled Cannabis for Older Adults. And I think actually maybe part of the answer to your question, I think in 2016, 2017, there were a series of uh, uh, large media publications on a rapid uptick of use of cannabis in older adults. I think there was a New York Times publication around that time. So I, I think it's a, that may be a threshold effect. I think I see 90 plus year olds in my practice all the time. I, I, ha I have this very funny stories where grand, grandkids would sit in the corner laughing, saying, finally, somebody's saying something right. And the, the <laughs> kids would sit in another corner saying, what the hell is he talking about? He's going to kill my, kill my, my parent. And then, and the grandparents like, sure, we knew all this back in sixties. What, what do you, you know, it's not nothing surprising here to us. So, you know, I think we're going to see that. And to me, it's extremely exciting because I think that in, in geriatrics, we have so few effective, safe tools that can hit multiple targets at the same time. You know, we have a pill for everything. And then first thing, you start one pill and next thing you know, whoops, a person is on 10 medications and then they have a side effect and then in the hospital and doing poorly because we did it to them, not, not them, not something else. And I think so having a tool that's much safer and yet can work for all different problems at the same time is, is, and, and use it wisely and hopefully get it cost down the way you describe it. I think that would be a really a, a game changer. So, but what, you know, there's a lot of news, there's tons of research, but what excites you most in terms of the most recent research articles or any kind of other new findings or new directions within the field of cannabis? Yeah. So, you know, there's more and more observational data that 
basically validates what I see in my practice. And I like that, but that's not what I find exciting. I've been, it's exciting, but I've been seeing that for a while. What's, um, what's really provoking my interest and has been for a while has to do with the precursors to the cannabinoids that everybody's talking about. So the plant cannabis doesn't actually make THC and CBD, as you know, it makes precursors that are acid forms of those molecules. So THCA, CBDA, these stand for acid and there's other acidic cannabinoids. And um, what I've been seeing in my practice for a long time is that these are special, that when these are present, patients are getting better results at lower doses. They're having distinct uh, physiologic effects. Uh, there's there's something going on there. Yet for years, these were called the inactive cannabinoids. So I've been super excited about uh, THCA and CBDA. Now we're seeing more and more animal research and a little bit of human data uh, to show just how powerful these these compounds are and I, you know just for the listeners i give a, a quick overview thca is very different than thc it's non-impairing it doesn't cause a psychoactive reaction it has some strong anti-inflammatory properties we're seeing some uh, seizure patients responding to uh, thca at very low doses we're seeing other neurologic issues like migraine and dementia responding well to thca we don't know a lot about how it works but it seems extremely well tolerated tolerated. Uh, and just very different than THC. On the other side of this, we have CBDA, which is in many ways very similar to CBD. It, it hits a lot of the same targets, particularly the capsaicin receptor, which is likely one of CBD's mechanisms of action in affecting pain and inflammation. It, it also impacts the serotonin receptor, which is likely one of CBD's mechanisms of action for uh, improving anxiety and mood, as well as nausea and affecting blood flow and, and many other things that serotonin can affect. Um, and it, it affects the glycine and the, and the uh, adenosine receptors like CBD. So it's it's got a lot of overlapping physiologic activity, but it's much more potent. So if you look at animal models, there's a, a Dravet syndrome seizure model that can, has compared CBDA and CBD, and CBDA was about 10 times more potent. There's a model of pain and inflammation in rodents in which CBDA was um, thousands of times more potent. Same with nausea and vomiting, thousands of times more potent at, uh, you know, for the same exact animal model. And we also know that the acidic cannabinoids are much more bioavailable when taken by mouth. So you can you tell I'm excited about this. I feel like everybody's been heating their cannabis and kind of uh, converting all of these compounds to their neutral forms, which is uh, not the right idea. I think uh, a blend of these is, is really ideal. And so, so that's that's where my excitement is. I think cannabis tea is a great way to get these acidic cannabinoids, or even just eating the raw plant. I recently uh, launched uh, some products, so now I'm really uh, not eligible in uh, the views of the uh, ACCME, the the organization that governs continuing medical education for uh, teaching clinicians in an accredited way anymore, because I am actively involved in the product side of this now, which I I chose to do because I was really not satisfied with the quality and consistency and formulation characteristics of the products my patients had available to them. So all of my products now have the acidic cannabinoids in them, which I, uh, what the feedback we've been getting over the last few months is, wow, this is so much more potent. I can use such a lower dose and I'm getting fewer side effects. And uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. 
You know, I think we can go forever. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I love this podcast with you today. Unfortunately, I think we're going to have to wrap up, but we're going to have to have you back. Um, we'll definitely I, I hope, need to have you back after the book comes out. After the book comes out, I think that'd be a really good time. And, um, you know, I think we maybe we would do a bit more of a practical and, you know, talk further about this new uh, compounds that are not traditionally thought to be um, active and you know CBD, ATHC, and others. But that's all the time we have for today. Dustin, it was absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I look forward to next time. And thank you for the work that you're doing as well, Dustin. Bef- before we let you go, can people pre-order the book yet? Yes, it is available on Amazon and other booksellers. Okay, great. So we'll have those links um, in the uh, show notes for Thank you. This, um, this episode. Okay. I really appreciate that. Our pleasure. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thank Thanks you for, for listening. listening.